EAG. They're leading the game. What game? The M&A game. The data conversion game. The last 18 years, EAG has helped dozens of EMP companies expedite acquisition onboarding, including the conversion of systems and data, allowing operators to hit even the most aggressive of TSAs. A 90-day TSA? Sure. 60-day TSA? No problem. 30-day TSA? Crazy, aggressive, but EAG can help. EAG has a refined, proven process to help operators integrate acquisitions and is the undisputed heavyweight champ for your M&A integration needs. For more information, visit EAGservices.com. That's right, EAGservices.com. Hey, everybody. As the best man at Gary Peterson's last wedding said, welcome back. This is part two of our podcast with Dan Pickering. In this episode, we're going to cover energy transition investing. We're going to go through Dan's new venture called Merge, where he's helping people electrify fleets of cars and trucks and vans. And then we'll also go through the lightning round of your questions off EFT, including what color is your favorite Speedo? Speaking of bubbles, now let's move to the third bucket energy transition. <laughs> the, um, so, energy transition, give me your take on what we should be wearing our investor hat again, what we should be doing there, what we should be looking for, and then I'll get up on my soapbox and rant and rave. Yeah, great. Um, I get to talk first, which is good. Um, in the energy transition, I think that um, as an investor, we need to learn the lessons that we learned in the shale boom, which is why is it that much different than right now? I think probably in energy transition, it's the equivalent of 2007 or eight in the shale bubble, right? So the shale boom started in 04 and, and so I think renewables, for instance, returns are bid down there dramatically. Do you want to buy acreage at $75,000 an acre like you did in 2012, 13, 14? I don't think so. So I think in energy transition, you just have to be very careful because it's, there is a lot of capital coming. There's a huge amount of government support, institutional support, individual support. People love this. There aren't that many ways to play, so there's a scarcity value associated with the ones that, that have an energy transition angle to them. Guaranteed, guaranteed, there are tens of billions of dollars worth of energy transition companies that will come to the market in the next 24 months. Why? Because it's, it's, like, a, it's like a gas. A gas expands to fill the room that it's in. Well, that's what happened in shale, which was the amount of projects expanded to fit all of the capital that wanted to invest in projects. Guess what? We will, we will see a lot of projects show up in energy transition. You're going to have to sift through them very, very carefully. So 
Um, the guys at Stevens that I used to work for John Jacoby's thing was use proceeds is bullshit. You sell equity when the market pays you to sell <laughs> equity. And and so so the answer is a lot of folks feel like they need to be there. And so we will have more private equity funds focused on energy transition. We will have more public companies focused on energy transition. I think importantly, a number of companies think they need to be involved in energy transition and they're going to be pivoting business models and some will work and some won't. And so it, this is going to be an amazing time for alpha because some business models will work and some won't. And, and there will be some home runs and there will be some disasters. So I'm not being hugely specific because I don't think we've got enough information yet to be super specific. So, you know, finding good management teams, finding businesses that are generating, you know, real revenues that are not just technologies. I think those are the things that are going to stand you in good stead. Looking in the corners, you know, we're on the record saying we like, we're looking at the enablers, right? Some of the picks and shovels guys around energy transition because, you know, I'm, I'm not convinced that owning a wind project is a great investment here, but do I want to own the guys who service the wind farms? You know, depending on valuation, maybe I do. So, Because it feels like, you know, part of the problem with shale revolution in any bubble you look at, you can look, I gave a speech for Hearts where I went through historical, all the bubbles, and I went through the tulip bubble, I went through the railroad bubble in England in the mid-1800s, mm-hmm. which, by the way, uh, one of the Rothschilds got off one of my single famous, single most favorite quotes about investing of all time. Because back in the mid-1800s during this railroad bubble, literally there was a point where for every project to just get its money back, everyone that lived on the island of England had to be riding a railroad 22 out of 24 <laughs> hours of the day, Right. And uh, so one of the Rothschilds supposedly remarked, there are three paths to ruin in this world, wine, women, and engineers. <laughs> the first two are more fun, but the last one's the most certain. <laughs> so, I, mean, I love it. Yeah. So, But I, I think one of the things that happens with Bubble, and I actually studied it and read a bunch about it. You know, the, the thing is, you, you, you literally they start because things start going up. Uh-huh. Period. No no rhyme or reason. There usually is some element of a story there. Hey, horizontal drilling, fracking, we triple reserves. So there, there's an element. but And usually it's the optimistic person that wins early on, and the optimism then winds up dominating the bubble, as opposed to the prudent. I mean, the best engineers in the Kane portfolio were not at the front of the shale revolution. Uh-huh. I mean, they were sitting there going, eh, I don't get this stuff. Anyway. But that's why they go up. Then the reason they go down is literally because they start going down. People start selling, and that's what causes the bubble to be over. Uh, and people have not been able to identify kind of key attributes of, oh, okay, this is when it's over. But one of the things I think that leads to it that's, that's very real is if I don't have exposure to that, I underperform. And if you're underperforming and you're an investor, investors withdraw their money from you. So, I mean, I think that's the hard challenge as you sit there and look at transition, energy transition, you go, it's happening. There is an alpha story here that I can get behind and figure out. And if I don't have exposure to it, oops, I'm potentially gonna underperform, but therein lies bubble, you know, energy bubble 
47.0 cuz we've had a lot of bubbles through the years. We we have and and Chuck you're you're making a great point which is which is the pressure to perform on what is historically relatively short time periods. Um, institutional investors, individuals, right? This world moves fast and so underperforming for 2 or 3 years that's a disaster. And that's a disaster that a CIO at a, at a, a pension doesn't want to deal with. And it's called a former CIO. That, that's right. And so um, when you think about those things, it, you know, people make fun of Warren Buffett right now, but I mean, that guy has some staying power because one, he's really rich already. And so he's pretty secure right. in his job. But, um, you know, you've got to invest in good companies and and sometimes value gets created it gets created over a period of time and recognized in a short period of time sometimes and um i think the energy transition could be very much that way and so this issue of how do you get exposure um i think the challenge for the institutional investor is one finding people with experience because not very many people have a lot of experience in this area and two it's the volatility that we've already seen, there's going to be a fair amount of volatility, I think, as we've seen in the public markets in the last year, which is, you know, stocks that go up 10x and then down 70% in, you know, a span of a year. That stuff is is challenging. So getting exposure smartly, it won't be easy. And again, I think it fuels, it's going to be the fuel, which is I got to get this money to work. And I mean, the best, the best story about I can remember looking at uh, when interest rates were 1%, and, and I, I asked a friend, he's like, how could you ever buy a bond when interest rates are 1%? And then a year later, interest rates in Europe anyway were negative 50 basis points, and bonds had been a great asset class. Like, there you go. It doesn't, you know, it's like, I don't understand it, but I get it after the fact. I think we're going to have some challenges like that in, in the energy transition. Well, and my biggest soapbox, and you've heard me uh, say this on on Clubhouse, but my biggest soapbox is, and I alluded to it earlier when we were talking, is, you know, it's a transition. So we're, you know, kind of going to field of dreams. If we build it, they will come. But I don't know that we have any, we could even hazard a guess about the regulatory framework we're going into until U.S., China, and maybe India sit down and figure out how are we getting rid of carbon. Because at the end of the day, ultimately, if you're looking at a, a wind project for 15 or 20 years, I mean, how do we know the tax subsidies are going to be there? How do we know that China just says, nah, no wind? It may, you know, and it may be ridiculous. I'm making up the absurd point. But I just, I think lagging into that is kind of our, our, our biggest challenge. And I don't want to say the word fraud, so maybe I'll just say remiss since I said it earlier, and it's a much more pleasant word. I almost worry if we're remiss as investors doing that until we can look somebody in the eye and say, no, this is what it's going to look like, the framework out out there, because that is just a big, huge issue. God knows what that treaty is going to look like. The This IEA net zero report that I mentioned earlier, it says, I'm going to get this wrong, but in, in terms of the exact wording, but it essentially says that 
half of the carbon that we're going to either sequester or not produce is going to be driven by technologies that do not exist today, right? So we got to develop them between now and 2030, and then from 2030 to 2050, we're going to use them. I wonder how they, that's the plug in the model. (laughs) We always had the wedge growth and reserves in a a model. There we go. I wondered how they figured that out. We got technologies coming. So so you look at that, and, and tying back to your point, I think if you wait, to know the framework, um, one, are you going to trust that framework? And two, how long does it take? Are we even ever going to have a framework? Are these those three countries going to come together or are they each going to have their thing? And you're going to have to handicap if they can get it done. And, and so back to this issue of the optimists move early. And I think the optimists are moving now. I think the optimists have a few more years. Um, it's just, man, you're going to have to sift through and figure out who's, who's an optimist and who's an idiot. And, and that has is, that is not historically been uh, easily well done by a huge mass of institutions. Yeah. So um, there will be some big firms that are good. They'll be the exception. There'll be some big firms that are pretty mediocre. That'll be the rule. There'll be some small guys that are amazing. They'll become big guys pretty quickly. I mean, we've seen it all, and we saw it with energy. It'll be the same thing in energy transition. And so, you know, you you got to pick your spots really, really well. And so there, the bigger you are, the more money you got to put to work, the lower your return hurdles better be because the, the harder it is going to be to put that money to work. Yeah. So – You've decided to play energy transition through merge. What is merge? I saw the press release. Yeah. So at, at a high level, when I think about how we're playing energy transition, um, generally we've taken the approach that we'd rather be agents than principals. So we're not trying to raise an energy transition fund or a venture fund. We're going to you know, there are enough of them right now, and we don't have anybody in our shop that is an expert in that area, and we're just trying to learn. So we're trying to come up the curve. Uh, as part of that coming up the curve process, we, um, we were talking to a lot of people about what they were doing in lots of different areas. And one of the folks that we came across was a guy named Glenn Stansel, who has a decade's worth of experience in the EV charging infrastructure business. Built out California charging system for EVgo, built out or helped build out the um, nationwide EV charging system for Electrify America. And so as we were talking to him about the business and what he does and how he does it, uh, you know, the question was what's next for him? Very smart guy. And Chuck, you know, in the investing business, Sometimes there are opportunities that you look at and that the, the opportunity is so great, you've got to be involved. And sometimes there are people that you say, I don't know what the opportunity will be, but this is a person I want to be invested with. And Glenn and his team clearly fit into that category. And as he talked about what was next for, for him and his team, he said, we're going to focus on fleets and the electrification of fleet vehicles. And I went away and did some work on that. And in Europe, it's fairly big kind of conversion process that's happening now. And, 
you know, this was 2019 into 2020. Then here comes ESG stuff that gets more dramatic. Then here comes the SPAC market that's giving more money to electric vehicle companies. And um, we said, this is really interesting because the economics of charging were improving for fleets and the impetus for conversion was improving because of ESG. And so we said, we said we need to be involved. That didn't answer your question, which was what is merge. So uh, the business that that we've started with Glenn and his team is a a call it all in one uh, provider of services and solutions associated with taking a diesel or gasoline powered fleet and converting it to an electric fleet. And so that involves everything from figuring, helping a customer, a client, typically a corporate client. Um, our focus area is 50 to 500 vehicles. That's sort of the lower middle market for fleets. How do you take that fleet, figure out what vehicles you ought to own, where their charging solution should be, what the economics are associated with making the conversion, how much money will you save with an electric vehicle versus a, a diesel vehicle, what kind of electric upgrades do you have to have? Do they want that financed? You know, wrapping that all together so that we can tell a customer, we will get you from a diesel fleet to an electric fleet. We'll help you save some money along the way and we'll take the fear out of the process for you. That's what Merge does. And we can do each little piece of it, but the whole, the turnkey, if you will, is really, the, is really our product and our solution. So give me give me an example of a fleet, just so we have. Yeah, um, a real life example would be uh, a, a West Texas upstream company that has five hundred white pickups driving around to wells, driven by their pumpers that are out checking wells and going to pads and taking care of facilities, et cetera. So that's a fleet that's one hundred percent gasoline powered today, and it's a fleet where you could probably save you know, a meaningful amount of money, electrifying it over time, driving Ford F-150 electrics as opposed to Ford F-150 gasoline vehicles. So one I'm going to call bullshit. Is that really possible? I mean, to me, so I have a, I have a Hummer mm-hmm. <laughs> H2 mm-hmm. and I have a, uh, I have a Tesla and the Hummer cost me, I believe, $14,800, and I can drive to Austin there and back, and I think my Tesla was $137,000. Is there really that much juice in the system that we can save? And if so, like how? Yeah, not not in every system, but and that's why this Ford F-150 announcement was a big deal, because your Tesla costs a huge amount of money and a massive premium to a gasoline car. If you looked, Ford said they're going to deliver this electric vehicle for forty grand, and your your gasoline Ford F one hundred and fifty costs about the same. So you're talking about similar entry prices, and then in fairness, the Tesla I bought four and a half years ago, so prices have come down. I'll give you that one. Yeah. So so it's it's very dependent on the vehicles and the premium pricing, and it's also very dependent on how many miles you drive. You drive to Austin occasionally and 10 miles a day, the math is never going to work. You drive 25,000 miles a year in a vehicle and those savings on both the maintenance side, you know, oil changes, you know, engine issues, et cetera, versus the electric. And then 
electricity versus gasoline. Electricity is cheaper. So you're saving for every mile you drive and you're amortizing any vehicle premium over those miles driven. So if you're driving 25,000 miles a year, the, the cost savings gets fairly meaningful. One of the things that's important in this process is most companies have a lot of data about their vehicles, where they drive, how fast, you know, all kinds of, of different patterns. Um, telematics data. You take that telematics data and you figure out what makes sense. That's We're not saying every customer should actually do this. The whole point is to take the data, figure it out, finger roll that back to the customer and say, here's the economics, here's the ESG or carbon or emissions benefits, what do you want to do? And then if they say, we want, you know, we want to be all electric in three years, okay, great, here's how you get there. So it, it's not the right answer for every person or customer or fleet, but you need to make that decision based on real information and analysis, and that's part of what we do. So in our example, who actually makes that decision at the customer? I mean, I would, and and what sprang to mind with me is back in the late 90s, I'm at Stevens, literally the coolest company I think I ever invested in in my career was Silicon Energy. They had an energy management software system. It literally sat up at the top of the enterprise. It talked to the accounting system. It talked to the control systems. So like, Walmart bought this and what it allowed them to do was import weather forecasting data so that they could set the temperature of the store at 70 degrees and set a 65 because it was going to be a little cooler than normal. And it was phenomenal for saving uh, amounts of money. It was phenomenal in terms of just learning an enterprise. Uh, Neiman Marcus bought a system they figured out somebody was stealing inventory because literally Saturday after inventory showed up at midnight, there was a blip in the electrical usage because, boom, lo and behold, guy was coming, turning on the lights, stealing the inventory. So it was just phenomenal. No, none. It, it didn't really make it because none of the companies bought it had people that would actually use this to its fullest. So it was one of those really cool tools. Do... Do the customers actually have somebody that can run through these spreadsheets, look through this, make this decision? Or is it just we buy trucks and we own them for 100,000 miles or five years whichever, or four years, whatever comes soonest, and then we get rid of it? Yeah. Or is that even an issue? Did I just make that up? No, you, you didn't make it up. I think that that the status quo, and, and depending on how big a fleet you run, you may have a you may have – a department that oversees it. You may outsource it to a third party, a fleet manager, um, a third party system that helps you with everything. Um, or you may have a small, you know, most companies with 500 vehicles or less have one or two people doing it themselves. And those two people do not have the time to analyze a bunch of data and maybe not the skills. And so that's what we're supposed to do, right? That's the market opportunity is we can take the data that they have many times not being interpreted. We can figure it out and see how it applies to electrification. One project that we're looking at right now, um, the average vehicle for them idles 700 hours a year, right? Just sits, right? Because people drive it to location, they get out, they leave it running. 
because that way the cab will be cool when you get back in after right. it being hot. So there's all sorts of data that you can then say, okay, well, how does that translate from a electric or a diesel fleet to an electric fleet? So um, the answer is, this is a process that's pretty straightforward now for most folks. They got a budget for vehicles. They, they know the maintenance costs because they've been doing it that way for a long time. There's probably economic opportunity to switch, but it's, it's scary and it's complicated. You know, first do no harm, just like a doctor. Right. That's kind of what we think about is you're not going to electrify your fleet if the vehicles don't get you to the spot you need to be at very consistently, just like your gasoline vehicles do. So um, it's, this is one of those things where knowledge is power. You got to give people the knowledge. Um, they may or may not have it on their own. We can deliver it. That's part of our value added. And then we take that scary process of, well, I don't know where a charger should be. That's right. The merge guys do. Merge guys are going to hold your hand the whole way. So we've we've chosen. I, I mentioned earlier that we we said we'd rather be generally an agent versus a principal. In this one instance, we're playing venture capital guy because we said these people are so smart and the opportunity set seems so big. We're hoping for the needle in the haystack of a successful business. And, you know, so far so good. We're, we've made really good progress so far. Um, I think that that the other piece for us as a business is we want to help companies raise capital. We want to help companies do M&A transactions. We want to write research and talk about um, what's happening in the energy transition. We think those ways are more going to be more consistent ways to make money. We're not going to become billionaires as agents. Right. But on the principal side, the billionaire story is much, you know, for every Silver Hill, <laughs> for every Silver Hill, there's a bunch of guys that don't make it. And so right now we're focused on one company we think might make it and helping a bunch of others give it a shot. Does, does ultimately this get cool in terms of more data, working on more projects where you literally change workflows at companies? And the reason I ask this is uh, I was talking to somebody, and I don't think this is a huge secret, but I won't say any names, that literally studying data from an EMP company came up with the rule that you can't put a truck in reverse. So literally all the pumpers now are not allowed to go in reverse and it's cut 60% off injuries because turns out pumpers back into things on a pretty regular basis. And the wear and tear on the car of jamming the car into reverse. And so there is a quantifiable benefit to not putting the car in reverse. And they figured that out through looking at the data. And I think they even used AI on the data. I don't think it was eyeball regression and stuff. Uh -huh. Does that ultimately happen out of this where potentially there are best practices in terms of, hey guys, if you do X, Y, and Z with your fleet, here's how you save even more? That that will be part of it. Part of the analysis will will identify things. And, and you're right, Chuck, it's not, this is not all an Excel spreadsheet. There's, you know, there's, uh, relationships that are not obvious in the data that you've got to be a data scientist to figure out. And so um, I think that that fits with this whole digitalization of the oil patch and of what a lot of folks are doing um, or talking about is taking all this quantum of data because it's a huge amount of information. It's not just 
it's not just vehicles, it's also how you drill a well and you know everything to do, all the data that we've gathered from both the, the drilling and production side of things. So the answer is yes, it will change behavior if folks want to do that. And, um, and back to the nickel and dimes commentary, we got to start looking under every rock for these opportunities because if if the oil patch grows, fabulous. We can, you know, price goes to 100, you covers up a lot of sins. If demand starts leveling off, you'd better be one of the low-cost guys. So you better figure out where those nickels and dimes are. And so um, I think we'll see a lot more focus on on the data side as you go forward. It's still a, you know, it's still a sledgehammers and and drill bit business, but we're going to have to get better at it because, you know, the, the industry is going to force us to. Any uh, other question I need to ask kind of merge related to get your, your full kind of commercial out? <laughs> you know, from a commercial perspective, what I would tell you is if anybody listens to this podcast and has 50 to 500 vehicles or maybe a little bit more and wants to understand what electrification means, mergefleet.com check it out call us call me call glenn stancil um you know we're we are in the startup phase of this business and we're talking to every customer we can talk to so thank you for the opportunity to 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 give the commercial um and, and you know we're obviously excited about the business gotcha all right so i went on twitter on saturday and tweeted out the fortunate enough to have you come down to Richmond, Texas, what is quickly evolving into the podcast headquarters of the, of the world, and ask folks what they wanted to hear um, in terms of questions. And I laughed a lot. <laughs> to, to, there were some honest. good ones. There were some good ones. So what I'll do is I will fire away with some of these questions. You, you uh, actually were smart enough to take notes. This is the difference between a corporate finance guy and a research guy. The research guy has notes, is prepared to do it. The corporate finance guy, that sounds great. I'll bring it up at the road show. Um, so I'll just fire away starting some of them, and then, then you pick up the ones we missed. You got it. So my favorite first one, what's it like sleeping with Bobby Tudor? <laughs> and I'm sure they met metaphysically, I think. Um, let's, let's be very, very clear. I think... The actual question, and we can, I'll find out who it came from uh, as I look through my notes here. But um, what I will say is that uh, Bobby Maynard and I have a fabulous platonic relationship, (laughs) and they were uh, fantastic partners from 2004 until we spun off in 2019. And so the answer is it's pretty damn good, you know, metaphorically sleeping with Bobby Tudor. So my favorite Bobby Tudor story because I went to Rice, um, and, uh, you know, Bobby's, of course, significantly older than I am, but, you know, I've known, known Bobby since, uh, since college. What I love to tell people is only an athletically deprived school like Rice University would name their gym, because it is Tudor Fieldhouse, where the Rice Owls play, after the career leader in turnovers in Rice's history. <laughs> I think he was the career leader in scoring for a while, too. But um, <laughs> that, that may be even worse. Whatever it takes. Well, you know what's so funny about that? That's actually not a true statement, but I've just said that my whole career about Bobby. <laughs> he'll, he'll want to be on the podcast next, Chuck. Exactly. Now, is it weird to kind of have the name Pickering over there on an entity that technically you're not involved with anymore? 
Yeah. So I, I thought that was a joke at first, but the more I've kind of thought about it, that that might actually be a real question. Yeah. When we when we um, when we got together, we spent in 2007. When we got together in 2007, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out a name. And if anybody that's ever started a business, you know, most of the good names are taken. I mean, literally, trademark, you can't get it. And so we settled on Tudor Pickering and then Tudor Pickering Holt. And, um, you know, that's been shortened over time to TPH because it's just a lot easier to, to say. And so the answer is, um, I'm certainly proud to have my name on that firm. We built it up from 10 people to 150 people, and it they do a lot of great work. And so um, I'm, I'm thrilled that, that TPH is still TPH, and we've got our We've got our brand even as we combined with Perella Weinberg here a few years ago as well. So um, I like that, that that brand is still out there. And hopefully it's not too confusing for folks. Pickering Energy Partners is also out there. And I hope it's as good as brand as TPH over time. You know, the funny story is, Chuck, uh, you know, my start was a, as a, a research guy and writing the TPH research note um, in 2010 I turned that over to the team and stepped into the asset management business to this day. So we've been separated from TPH legally and physically for several, almost several years now to this day. Hey man, I read your note this morning. That was a really interesting comment on XYZ. <laughs> and and I've stopped, I've stopped even correcting folks like, thanks. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Glad you enjoyed it. That's I like right. that. Now, one note that came to me, question came to me through direct message mm. as opposed to mm. being posted online is I heard that back in college when you were an intern for the summer you had a rather interesting nickname Ooh, that's good that's really good do you care to share the nickname so the the story here if and I'm going to assume that that this person got it right um, my first summer in the oil patch. So back in the day when I was in college, there is no such thing as email. Um, you just started having computers, but my, my resume was typed and my, my letters asking companies to hire me was typed on a typewriter. And um, so I had taken a job. So this is between my freshman and sophomore year. You don't know anything. You've had two petroleum engineering classes or whatever. I'd taken a job at the Missouri uh, uh, Missouri Transportation uh, System as an intern. It was set like 10 miles from my house, and I was making $8 an hour. And I got an offer to work in Scheidler, Oklahoma, which I'd never heard of, um, but that's you know several hundred miles away, and it was for 7 bucks an hour. And I was going to be a roustabout. And so I could live at my house and work for eight bucks an hour. I could go 200 miles away and make seven bucks an hour. But I took the job in the oil patch because I thought it was the smart thing to do. I became a roustabout and I was terrible. I mean, I was just <laughs> terrible at it. Didn't understand anything, right? I'm at the time 18 years old. And so one of the welders that I worked with fairly frequently um, started calling me dangerous. And so I was dangerous, Dan. And then one of the jobs that I wound up doing a lot 
was mowing around all of the various lease offices and whatnot. So I became Dangerous Dan, the Missouri Mowing Man. <laughs> and um, to this day, it's probably the most accurate nickname I've ever had. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Dangerous Dan, the Missouri I, Mowing Man. I think man. we need that on hoodies, Landman Life. <laughs> so what other questions did we miss from, the, from EFT? Chuck, I'm going to... I think we got like 18 of them, and I'm going to shout them out really quick here, and, and you, you, you lay in. So we're going to do like um, the, lightning round. the equivalent of lightning round, only hopefully we know what we're talking about. Um, so at Nat Gas Purveyor says, when is the U.S. government going to start acquiring oil and gas because it's cheaper than subsidies? Given this administration, there will never be acquisitions uh, by the government of oil and gas properties. Um, you are correct. <laughs> there we go. At War 527 says, is Pickering Energy's entry into energy transition a top? I'm going to say no, still early in the game. What other PE firm will signal a top? I think it's going to be, you know, Kleiner, Perkins, or some traditional tech firm raising a huge energy transition fund. And I think that's a number of years away. At Chuck Yates' dad, who knows if it's your real dad, says, "Will should taxpayers pay to clean up and plug abandoned wells? The answer is, you know, the government's probably going to wind up doing some of that, and they're going to push it down. What do you think? No, I think I, I think you're you're absolutely right that it, at some point abandoned wells are going to sit there, and the government's going to have to do it. Yeah. Um, at Jack Tour seven five five seven seven five six nine, which may be their their phone number or a 900 number for a psychic says oil and get what oil investments and transition investments have been made by PEP this year. And what are the expected returns? It's actually a good one. We did two deals. We did two deals in the Permian where we're drilling wells, you know, kind of development deals out there. Uh, we think at oil in the fifties, you know, low 40, sorry, high forties to low fifties. Those are three Xers. And we did this merge transaction, which is a venture deal that is either going to be a zero or a 50-bagger, one of the two. So very my, dis- different, my distinctive. Dad, my dad's a doctor, and when patients would come to him and say, what are my chances of living? Dad would always say, it's either 100 or zero. <laughs> you know, so that's venture capital. He's, he's absolutely right. Here's one, Chuck, you got to weigh in on. Um, C.T. Spitzer says, what movie best represents the oil and gas industry today? You go first. I got a good one for this. Um, I'm going to go very, very personal on this for uh, for me. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Ah, so that's where I am. With there we the, go with the oil business. What about you? There we go, Ferris. I I think it's Castaway because <laughs> Tom Hanks lived a pretty shitty life for about five years on that island, and then he came back, and everything was pretty good. Um, at, Wilson. <laughs> Wilson, yeah, took some risks to get found again. At Gray Hair Ops Guy says, what are the strategies for PE to succeed in the current environment? I think we talked about those. At Munich 702 says, what's the macro oil and, and natural gas look like and what major E&P basins are interesting? I, I, I gave the oil outlook. I think Natty had, Nat Gas is a three to two, 250 to 350 commodity because we got plenty of it, but we are seeing some reduction in, in – uh, Inventory quality. Uh, this Cabot Simmerex deal was interesting today, given that you got a, a gas player that's combining with a with a more oily player. 
You got any views on natural gas, Chuck? Um, I, I think I think you're right in that inventory is depleting, but at the same time, if oil's as bullish as you say, we're going to have a lot of associated natural gas. So, you said two fifty, three fifty. I'll say two to two seventy five. There we go. Just because of that. Yep. Um, uh, triple I underscore Winthorpe, which is uh, Lewis Winthorpe, who I think is a good account says what's the most value or most valuable metric in a pitch deck um i don't know about a pitch deck but i still think you know a dcf and or nav is important uh you know the the market likes the market likes ev to ebitda and some other cash flow multiples right now but i still think at the end of the day what the how to playing out that reserve base is a really important one what do you think i'm gonna put my plug back in for transparency the yeah. fact there's not a good one means we need more transparency. And I'll go ahead and uh, call Equitable and the Rice Brothers out. Why don't y'all lead the charge on that? Because you you are the guys that could get away with doing that. There we go. That is, I mean, that is throwing down the gauntlet. Um, at Theo Santopolo says, uh, is it weird having your name on a company? He said, we already talked about that one. And he said, what's the insights from the, the energy transition research? And I'm going to say... Stay tuned. The most interesting insight to me so far, there's so much we don't know, right? There are so many questions. So anybody that thinks they have the answer right now is is kidding you and themselves, in my opinion. I, I will say this, and I even said this before last week's podcast where Sean Mueller came in and talked about kelp and carbon mm-hmm. capture. I think God created a way for carbon to be sucked out of the air i.e. trees, photosynthesis, and the like, and ultimately that's going to be the solution because we're not giving up our standard of living, to your point earlier. So hard to, hydrocarbons aren't going away. Yeah. OG Cashflow says, uh, what's the evolution of credit support for ENP? Um, you know, and there's another question later on about RBLs. I just think there's less money because some of these guys, have, they're tightened, they've tightened up their terms, and there are fewer guys doing it. So I think the evolution is money, just like I'll be consistent, I think more people will come back and lend to the sector, but I think that's a little ways away. Uh, I'll take the opposite side of this, and, and we're talking we're talking possible outcomes, yeah, yeah, right? Sure. But I don't think it's off the table that one or two of the major banks just say, no, we're out of hydrocarbon lending, and it creates a domino. Literally where a bank because of their shareholders, because of government bank regulators, just can't loan to hydrocarbons anymore. I would not be surprised if in five years that's a total private business. If that happens, that will be, I mean, that'll be bad for the business because cost of capital will be higher and it'll be a fabulous business because yeah. instead of you know lending at six, you can lend at 13. Right. And, and, and you can be real about those hedges. Yes. Guess what? You actually have to put them on. <laughs> right. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, at uh, OUL underscore Mang says, what's your favorite Speedo color? Chuck, you could not resist and answered this <laughs> on Twitter. And if I remember right, you said something like puce. And mauve. And mauve. <laughs> I, I, am a, I am a black Speedo guy all the way. Um, at, at Remember Mal- that black is slimming. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, no comment. Uh, at Chevron Exec says, what should Chevron buy next and why is it not an upstream operator? 
So I think that's an interesting question. And let's pretend it's not Chevron, but the majors. Right. Right. This goes back to how do the majors. So the majors should have bought some stuff in this downturn. Right. When oil's 26 bucks, what do you do? You go grab the best stuff. And they didn't do it. And they didn't do it because they're in this ESG box. And so the, that's why it will not be an upstream operator. If, again, read the net zero report, electricity is going to be huge. So will there be a convergence of oil and gas and electricity? Maybe Shell's kind of playing gas and whatnot. But um, it's electricity is going to be a biggie uh, over time. So you're on the board at Chesapeake. You're out looking for a new CEO, right? Because they're running a search. Um, does energy transition come up? And, and and what I'm trying to say is basically the majors are going to have to have that discussion. If you're a smaller cap oil and gas company, is energy transition even on the table? Or are you just oil and gas until it goes away? Yeah, I, I am hopeful that our consulting business will have five years worth of lots of board discussions and a bunch of different people hiring us to answer that question. What I'd say right now is the majors can afford to do it. The little guys can't afford to think about it. And the guys in the middle are really, really trapped, the upstream guys, because they're too big to ignore it and too small to spend a lot of money on it. So, you know, are you just going to be the guy who plays around with it for a while? Um, I think upstream's the most challenged area. If you're a service guy, you figure out how to, you know, service windmills or do other things in the transition. If you're just a plain old oil or gas producer, how do you get away from being a hydrocarbon guy? Yeah. Uh, it's really, really hard. It's going to be interesting to see the first somebody take cash flow off of PDP and invest in electric charging stations yeah. or wind farms or whatever. Yeah. First, you got to get the free cash flow, then you got to figure out what to do with it. So let's let's get the industry that free cash flow, right. and then see what they do. At Land Department says, um, "Tell us about the time uh, you got Art. I assume they mean Art Berman kicked off the World Oil column. Um, I don't know about that. We did have a dust up with Art at at TPH around some macro stuff, but I think it was at a pretty high level and fairly professional. So I hope we didn't get him kicked off a column, but um, that's that's the thing I, I will, an advertisement or something I would tell everybody in our Twitter community is, um, you know, it's a great forum to have a debate and right, you debate the issues, not the people generally. And so um, I, I think that, it would all help us to remember that sometimes because sometimes stuff gets a little too personal when the reality is let's talk about the issues and and it's more fun to for us to go back and forth about what we think about the issues than it is for me to to joke that your hair's too long or that I don't have any hair or whatever so I don't know. You being bald is pretty funny. But. It is. <laughs> it's, it's too easy, and I've got a thick skin. Some people don't. Now, we'll make Colin jokes. Colin <laughs> short jokes. Um, those are, I say that, of course, and then I just laugh my ass off at some of the great humor on EFT. So, so don't go changing, but change a little bit. Um, at EGB something says, are enough banks uh, – leaving to make a meaningful difference in upstream finance. And your answer was a good one. I mean, it, that could be very, very, very meaningful. Um, 
at Elon Muskie was the was the question about me and Bobby Tudor, which we already answered. And at Shale Acrobat says, "Will this is a good one? Will energy transition be about carbon reduction or or sequestration? Which is more important over the next thirty years?" You just said, Chuck. I I, I said I uh, I think at the end of the day, sequestration, carbon removal from the air, whatever it by whatever means it, it happens, because I just really don't see us giving up hydrocarbons and even if we want to i don't see china and india giving it up that's i also believe that's the case the sequestration side of this says you can live your life and fix it another way carbon another way and that seems to be much more realistic so hats off for um hats off for being more realistic and then at energy underscore banker the last one said uh, what's a story from starting pep um or a favorite story. So the answer, the answer there, um, is is a personal story, but it's a funny one. Where as this process was happening, my partner Walker Moody and I were talking about what do we want the new company to look like, and um, I basically I basically said, dude, if I have to be on every pitch, I don't want to do this. And so I got to from the very beginning push all of some of the not fun stuff off onto him from the very beginning. So that was like my, the best negotiating move I've ever made, (laughs) which is keep the fun stuff like doing this podcast on my list and doing pitch books off my list. So that's a good, that's a good place for me to think about starting up PEP. Yeah, no, that's great. Dan Pickering, you were awesome to come down. Thank you, Chuck. This This was was fun. This was very cool. The, uh, I will uh, I will throw out to EFT any chance you get to have uh, Dan Pickering for talk for an hour and a half, two hours, and have tacos beforehand is a day well spent. The tacos were the best. Thank you, Chuck. Appreciate you coming in.